make sure I got everything rolling, rolling. Oh, interesting. Everything is rolling. So we had a good band practice today. We actually live streamed that as well. We some live streaming machines now. We're taking over the media. Welcome everybody to the stream. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a beautiful Sunday. Fall is kicking in. Saturday. Saturday, thank you. Yep, yep it's the weekend. I had a panic attack there. I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, losing days, losing days, losing days. Remember when you were a kid and the days would last forever and summers were an eternity and now it's like, did I miss a few? Like, where are we? Where are we? Where are we in this continuous cosmos? Where are we on the screen? What, what are we it? working? <laughs> I believe we are. I see you. I see you're still moving. Um, I can see us. You can't see us. It's better if I don't. But it's everything is where it needs to be. And uh, I do believe we are rocking and rolling. So. Uh, can you recall what we went through in the last episode? We just covered episode two of Awakening oh, from the God. Crisis. Oh, God. Which episode was that? What was the name of that? That was a Metaphor, Axial Revolution and Flow. Oh, uh, yeah. yes. Yes. And the descent of... And distributive well, cognition, Bronze. or distributed cognition, or distributive cognitive networks, like language and internet, and books and things like that. Uh, we learned about the flow state, how it can be triggered, and also what it's like the sense of uh, oneness, the sense of watching oneself, timelessness, the great deep sense of meaning. It's not like a pleasure per se, but it still feels like the most amazing thing. In fact, it's like the best feeling according to people that experience the flow state. And that would be people that you know are involved in sports, martial arts, music, like jazz and improv. Uh, mountain climbing. Uh, or We d discussed the flow channel and had that yes. nice little chart with the... So to sum up, sum up the flow state, it's like the ultimate, the optimal state of experience between boredom and anxiety. Yes, being yes, challenged yes. just enough so you're not bored, but not too much that you get anxious, right? And he talked about the shamanism. And the main takeaway I got from that is pretty much shamanisms were the or shamans were the, you know, the forefront of their technological evolution. You know, they're the guys who made all the techniques to get us into these states. And the pioneers, the, you know, as the you pioneers say, of, yeah, the, of, of these psychotechnologies that help trigger flow states. And we learned about, um, we learned about a little bit about language and the formation of language, but now we're really going to get yeah, into al alphabetized now. language too. So yes. Just, you know, opposed to, that pictograph, what, what's the term he uses? Uh, ideogram? I ah, can't remember the name, but, you know, instead of pictures, instead of, you know, like, eyeball, eyeball, falcon, crocodile, or various, like, cuneiform, which are little scratches, uh, we went to an alphabetized language, which mm -hmm. allowed more and more people to become literate and use these psychotechnologies thus enhancing our already existing uh, distributed cognitive network. All right, guys. Well, we're going to get into it. This is part three, episode three of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis with John Verbeke. 
Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Uh, this is uh, our third time together. Uh, last time we were talking about uh, more what was going on in shamanism and the Upper Paleolithic transition. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, the flow experience and how it integrates altered states of consciousness, something like, or at least uh, on a continuum with mystical experiences and meaning making. Uh, enhanced insight and intuition and how this uh, resulted in an enhanced capacity for metaphorical cognition which greatly e expands uh, human cognition, makes it much more creative, uh, much more capable of generating all of those uh, fantastic connections in meaning uh, that drove the Upper Paleolithic transitions explosion in culture and technology. And then we move to consider some other intervening revolutions that also had an impact. We talked briefly about uh, the Neolithic Revolution and the beginning of agriculture and then the rise of civilizations. We got into the Bronze Age civilization and then that led us into uh, the revolution we're concentrating on now, which is the Axial Revolution, a period around between 800 BCE and 300 BCE following the Bronze Age collapse. The Bronze Age collapse, if you remember, was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, collapse in civilization the world has ever seen. And that facilitated much more uh, experimentation in smaller scale societies. Uh, and that experimentation resulted in the creation of new psychotechnologies. One was alphabetic literacy happening in uh, the area of Canaan. And it's eventually going to be taken up very quickly by the Hebrews and then taken up by the Phoenicians and taken to the Greeks. The Greeks, as we'll see today, uh, or at least uh, today or next time, uh, further improved it. We talked about how that psychotechnology, alphabetic literacy, makes literacy more effective, uh, more efficiently learned, more powerful in its operation, greatly expands the number of people that can be literate, enhances the distributed cognition and how that psychotechnology gets internalized into our metacognition and produces second-order thought. We get an enhanced awareness of our own cognition, both its power and its peril. We get an enhanced awareness of its capacity for self-correction and self-transcendence, but we also get an enhanced awareness of its capacity for self-deception. We talked also about the invention of coinage to help deal with the mobile armies of this time, and how that trains you in abstract symbolic thought and uh, more rigorous mathematical reasoning and that also gets internalized, it gets exapted right, uh, into second order thinking and people start to become aware of themselves in a different way. They start to become much more aware of the meaning-making nature of their, of their cognition, its capacity to generate illusion and self-deception and also its capacity to break out of illusion and self-deception and to come into a contact with a more real world. So this leads to some fundamental changes. People start to become uh, more aware of their responsibility for the violence and the chaos and the suffering in their own lives. And they start to become aware of how much the transformation of mind, or mind and heart, because in the actual age these terms are often referred to in a singular manner, how much transformation in the mind and heart is the way to alleviate suffering. So what starts to happen is 
the mythological framing, frame, framework and the way people are framing themselves and their world changes. Now let me explain to you how I'm using this word myth because I'm not using it the way we standardly use it. Um, this, the, the use I'm going to talk about has been deeply influenced by people like Jung, uh, people like Tillich, um, Victor Turner, just a whole bunch of different thinkers. So when we use the word myth, we tend to mean a falsehood that is widely believed. Okay? And that's unfortunate uh, because we've lost the term for what I want to talk about. See, myths aren't false stories about the ancient past. They're symbolic stories about perennial patterns that are always with us. That's a very different thing. So a lot of what's going on in myth is an attempt to take these intuitive, implicitly learned patterns and put them into some form that is shareable with ourselves and with each other. So in the Bronze Age world, before the Axial Revolution, people experienced the world in what's been called by uh, Charles Taylor, like the continuous cosmos. Well, uh, I, I have a few questions about the use of the word cosmos, but we'll come back to that later. The idea here is human beings experience themselves in radical continuity, that, that sense of connectedness right? that you see even back in the shamanic world was very prevalent in the continuous cosmos. In the continuous cosmos, people feel there's a deep connection, a deep continuity between the natural world and the cultural world, and between the cultural world and the world of the gods. So the differences right, are, are not really differences so much in kind as they are in power. It, it's not odd that animals might talk, right, or they might have sort of deep societies. It's not odd for us, for certain human individuals, to think themselves divine. Like the greatest axial age, sorry, the, great, the greatest pre-axial age empire is Egypt. And the pharaoh is a god king. He's something like a god. Why? For, uh, for us, we can only understand that at most metaphorically. Here's what you have to try and understand. It's not a metaphor for the ancient Egyptians. Right? Why? Because the differences between right, human beings and the gods are differences in power. This is a cosmos that is where reality is experienced primarily in power, in terms of power. The gods are just more powerful than us, more glorious than us. You can even see this in the Old Testament, right, where the, if, you, if you ask people, you can ask people, what, you know, uh, what term is most often used of God? And people will say, you know, righteous or holy. Well, those are used quite often, but the term that's most used is glorious, shining with power, right? which it's not a moral term at all. Say, think of the Greek gods. They're not moral exemplars at all. They're just extremely glorious and extremely powerful. The Egyptian king, the pharaoh, is extremely glorious and extremely powerful. So, of course, he's godlike or pot potentially even a god. So, there's this continuous cosmos. And it's continuous in another way. 
right? It moves like this. It moves in great cycles. Just like the seasons. Just like day and night. Time moves in large cycles that repeat through eternity. In fact, what you're often trying to do with your ritual behavior is you're trying to tap into this continuity. You're trying to get back to the original power of creation. So you often enact the metaphorical story, the myth of how the universe is created in order to try and tap into that creative power. There's a, there's a, there's a constant nostalgia for getting back. right? And your attitude towards the world is you want to fit into these cycles. You want to be in harmony with them. You don't want to really change things a lot. Because if I change this, if I change my future, I'm actually undermining my past. It's a very different way of relating to the world. So it's, there's this continuity between the natural world, the social world, and the divine world. And time is wrapped on itself. Yeah, so okay. that, that last statement by, uh, you know, how did he say it? Uh, by trying to change your future or changing your future, you're undermining your past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he was talking about, you know, like... This continuous sense of reality, continuous cosmos. Yeah, so he broke he broke down, uh, I'll call it like a hierarchy of power. And it, it first started out with like nature and just society, society into God. And the only thing that makes them different is their level of power. Mm. And, you know, you could, so he mentioned, you know, the Greeks and all that. You, you would see statues that they build of like these huge, perfectly proportioned, you know, God figure looking things it's like well the gods were humans just bigger and then, mm. you know at that stage in our uh, I don't know what you want, want to call it like reasoning development as a species well how do you think of something much greater than you oh it must be like bigger, bigger. and has powers yeah. <laughs> yeah. it rises above you and it doesn't have to be morally superior to you either you know no. Zeus he was a philanderer no but it made sense to like give somebody a hawk head yeah, you know sure. and they had long vision they could fly sometimes and well, what does a hawk have? They, they see far. Right, right. Uh, you know, they have a certain wisdom, but they're also terrible, you know, predators that'll get you. Birds of prey from the sky. Mm-hmm. So, and you can tell, you know, you can tell a lot of story with just the actual symbols you use, like, you know, the, the person with different animal heads in Egyptian lore. It's, it's not arbitrary. They're not just like, oh, I like animals, you know. I'm not just going to put heads on him. It's like, no, what does the hawk mean? What does the, the desert dog mean? What does mm -hmm. the cat mean? What is, you know... And it, meant, it made actual literal sense to people that sure. animals could speak, yeah. that they had societies of their own. And it was our problem that we couldn't hear them. We just weren't yeah. listening. I think that would be like the more like, you know, Japanese end of things. I could see like a Miyazaki film. Right, yeah. Totally uh, different yeah, way of that. perceiving. And you see that in some of the old stories and it's it's woven into the Old Testament. Well, even, you know, like, going to, like, old, um, like, fairy tales and stuff, and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know, he mentioned myth yeah. at the very oh, beginning yeah, yeah. of this is, you know, and I, I'm kind of with him on this. I don't like the idea of that, you know, myths are just, oh, like, something that's false. No, it's like, it's, it's an allegorical story that's supposed to, you know, kind of, like, get you to understand something without just being, this is this, which doesn't stick. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah but um, they weren't supposed to be. But people lived those myths back then too. You know, the fairies were real. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the little gremlins that messed with you, you know, were real. The tree spirits, these spirits that, that were real for the people mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they you know, it wasn't like, I guess nowadays we're, we think of a myth as something that's not real, but it is. Yeah, but we have our own story. myths that aren't like not real, but like our own myths that we tell ourselves that we exist in. And I'm sure teaching tales. Go another ten thousand years in the future, or even a thousand years in the future, and we look back on this, and it's just like you know, mm-hmm. we got the memes now, so it's going to be interesting looking back on that because memes are myths mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. that are just pictures, well, kind of like the raw, you know, or you know, like, yeah, like yeah especially well, funny it's memes. Two, two that pictures are like with short reading. information, yeah. but there's so much information packed into a meme yeah. because you have to know about the backstory, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, seeing the evolution of all the whatever viral memes stuff. And, yeah, yeah. Memes on memes on memes on memes. Yeah. <laughs> memes I found in a gutter. Memes I found in an abandoned basement. You know, all those. It's videos. a whole new art form. A whole new form of comedy. But, a whole those new are form our of myths teaching now, and learning. You know, yeah. our, our little. These are little pocket-sized myths. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so, um, and it's, it's cyclical. Like, all this is cyclical. The prophets, you know, aren't prophets because they could tell the future. They could just read the cycle. Yes. Kind of gauge where they're at within yeah. the cycle. He's about because to go happened into that, before. Right? Yeah, yeah, so that's where we're at. Yeah, um, and I have a theory of time being somewhat cyclical, not not, not in a circle way, more like a corkscrew. But that's that's, mm. another, that's another like a spiral. Yeah. Well, that's how the Earth is traveling through space. Yeah. You think about it. <laughs> this is like almost this. like when we woke up to the fact that the Earth was a globe. We also can get an idea of our orientation in the cosmos. Uh, by seeing that the sun is traveling in a great, giant arc along that Milky Way spiral. So it's just traveling through space. We're never, when the Earth comes back around the sun, it's never in the same place again. Never. Because the sun is traveling. So it's more like, this is the sun, and this is us going around the sun as we travel through space. And so, yeah, we're doing a... So every every second Spiral. of your life, you're actually a lot further away from the last spot you just thought <laughs> a you lot were. further. Yeah, yeah <laughs> because it's not just this way, but it's also traveling. this way. Because there's some, yeah. but yeah, nerd out on that for a while. Let's get, <laughs> let's get back to this. Let's do it. In this really important way, I'll back it up a little bit. Uh, yeah, I could now, now what happens in the actual age is this way of looking at things is shattered. Now, it doesn't go away. There's aspects of our thinking that are still like this. But what gets layered on top of it is a totally different worldview, totally different mythology for understanding the relationship between the self and the world. So Charles Taylor talks about this as the great disembedding. When the axial revolution hits, this world is replaced by a different one. Now... Again, I'm speaking mythologically here. People will talk about it mythologically, and you have to understand that it doesn't mean the way we would think of it as a literal scientific thing, nor is it what we would merely call metaphorical. Mythological is neither scientific nor just metaphorical. Now, what's this new world? Well, this new mythological worldview uses a mythology of two worlds. The idea is, this is the everyday world. This is the world of the untrained mind. This is a world that is beset by self-deception, self-destruction, 
illusion, violence, chaos. It's a world in which we are out of touch with reality. But opposed to this is the real world. Now, mythologically, you can talk about this as two worlds, but of course, in a lot of the traditions, the real world is just cutting through the illusion of the everyday world. But the idea is the real world is how the trained mind, the wise mind, sees the world. This is how the world looks when you're in touch with reality, when your mind is not beset by illusion and delusion, when you have that sense that this is how things really are. This is a world also in which there is reduced suffering and violence, precisely because the mind is not beset by foolishness, precisely because it is not out of touch with reality. Now here, wisdom is power-oriented. To be a wise individual is to learn how to acquire the power that was imbued at creation into the cycles. It's like energy is put into the system and it cycles around, and then energy is put in the system and it cycles around, and you want to tap into that power. Wisdom is how to tap into that power. Because what you're after is, like, long life. Live long and prosper, as it's in the Star Trek mythology for the Vulcans, right? You, you want to be prosperous, you want to live long, you want to be free of conflict, right? You want to provide security for your offspring. So that's a sense of wisdom that is still captured in our sense of the word prudence, right? Being very prudential is to have that sort of knowing how to fit into the power structures of your society, how to make things work for you, getting the most power and prosperity you can. But over here, there's a radical change. Wisdom changes because, look, you do not want to fit into this world because this is the world of suffering and violence. It's a world in which you're out of touch with what's real. And as we'll talk about it later, you d deeply desire to be in touch with reality. It's one of your most powerful drives. You don't want to conform to this world. You want to be transformed out of this world. You want to move from here to here. Now notice what's happening here. The old shamanic enacted myth of soul flight, flying above, is being exapted into a new sense. It's being exapted into this sense of self-transcendence out of the everyday world into the real world. And wisdom is now knowing how to make that transformative leap. And meaning isn't about just connectedness as it was here, but a special kind of connectedness. A connectedness to the real world as opposed to a detrimental connectedness to an illusory world. So meaning is changing, and the notion of wisdom is changing, and the notion of yourself, what it is to be a self, because here you're defined largely by how you fit in, and of course that's always going to be part of our definition. I'm talking about emphasis here, I'm not talking about absolute differences, but here you're, de you're defined more by how you fit in. But here you're defined increasingly more by how you can self-transcend 
self-transform. How you can grow as a person. Notice how pervasive this has become in our self-understanding. Notice how we don't like to be with people who aren't growing, who aren't somehow transcending, growing, which way do you, growing up, right? Becoming more mature, getting more in touch with themselves and reality. So this is called the great disembedding because now we, we have a different relationship to the everyday world. And this is a metaphor that you don't see before, you don't see over here. This is the idea that we're somehow strangers in the world. All right, so he's just presented the meaning crisis in a nutshell here, hasn't he? Yeah. It, and yeah, I want, I want to bring it to like the, the example he used about, you know, what it used to be is the sensible, reasoned thing to do is to try to fit in, and that's how you find your me meaning. Um, and, you know, you can see this, like, if you've ever been to, I don't know, like May Day festivals or other things like that, or, hell, even a Renaissance fair. But we go through this psychologically as, you know, in our younger, you know, before we become angsty teenagers, it's like, well, how do you fit in? Mm -hmm. like, who's the most popular? Well, the person that fulfills all of these criteria yeah. of fitting in. Niche roles. And then this rising above from the everyday world that isn't to the real world, which is as it is, mm -hmm. without your reasoning boxes. We developed an ability to measure. We developed mm -hmm. mathematics. We were developing increased um, cognitive grammar. So we were developing ways of understanding and that were much broader than before because now more and more people are starting to have access to literacy. We developed the phonetic alphabet and... So now that's, that's spread. More people have access to stores of knowledge, the ability to store their knowledge, to reflect broadly on things. And now more people are communicating in a deeper way as well, more sophisticated language. And more regularly as well. Um, mm -hmm. I venture to say probably at this axial revolution point is, I'm no expert, but I dabble in history a little bit, but where you would start seeing things like, not a proper mail service, but it wouldn't be unheard of to write something down and have it sent to the other side of town by a runner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe just for the sake of, you know, hey, this is happening. I'm not coming over right now. I'm swamped. Mm -hmm. Send the runner. Yeah. And it becomes more common, more common, more common. And then, well, maybe you start seeing the, the wise guys, the wise men that it's like, well, how do you always know what's going on? Well, they see the world as it is. Yeah. Not as we would have it. Because right. I think that's the thing, you know, like the, the old world, the world of the suffering is, well, you know. Well, it's it's because we made a mistake as a tribe that this storm came, kind of connection to reality. And then we started to realize, oh, sh shoot, we're, sin we're sinning or we have the capacity for violence. And we started to realize mankind's effect on the events that happen within our societies. And well, so we started, we became increasingly due to the increased sophistication of language and then the ability to measure and self-reflect on ourselves in a much deeper way. We developed this realization that we were a cause of things that were happening. And now... And directly personally within our own lives too, not just like a group thing. Because mm -hmm. you notice he's talking about wisdom now being, being, knowing how to make that transition between the two. Um, 
that's yeah. a very personal individual thing very so the much. individual finds wisdom the wisdom isn't the wisdom of the crowd now it's the wisdom of the individual there's this sometimes around this period of time something shift and we started really yeah. well, we start individual feeling... personal responsibility mm-hmm. for what's in our lives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. or at least those yes. who are wise and wary the um, wiser you are the more uh, aware of your own mind that you are oh. yeah yeah so this so it's like this ongoing awakening that we are in the midst of that's been going on for the last couple few thousand more it's years constantly adding layers and yeah. more sophisticated we're widening our distributive networks like you were saying the runner yeah that would travel from house to house now it's about the same speed by the time you text somebody you finish the text you send it off just like you finish the letter and send it off but now the we person might be a little bit busy and the runner's got to run so eventually, like within a minute or two, someone checks the text. If you're lucky, if they have the phone next to them or if they're at home where the runners are now appearing. Um, so it's interesting that the speed was working on that smaller scale. But the larger you make that town, the larger it becomes a city, becomes a kingdom, becomes a nation, becomes a world. It's amazing that we keep longing to find ways to connect with one another. We now have these super highly advanced distributive con- cognitive networks like the Internet. Yep. That we're able to instantaneously communicate. Well, and that's the thing. Every time, like, these techniques become more uh, ubiquitous, it removes a layer of power from, like, you know, we, mm. like, at from this period of time, yeah. the whole story of the Bible is being like, no, you're not God. God so everybody, is God. God is God. The emperor or the king. Yeah, yeah. God, God is God, and you may be king, but God is God. Yeah, and the poor, the <laughs> most downtrodden, the orphan, and the world the matter stage, as much as the king. And yeah, and then we're <laughs> at the stage idea. now where. You know, we're, we've kind of lost. Like, well, where's our position with God? That mm-hmm. may, that, that's my opinion. I can't say. Sure. Fact, well, we feel I'm... a sense of separation from the from the whole thing mm-hmm. now too. We're not in this continuous cosmos. That we're now in this two world experience and situation. But science and and our understanding of each other's cultures and the ancient wisdom schools that provide all all of this material and. Uh, techniques and ways of of realizing oneness, self transcendence, rising. Um, that th- all of that is become becoming known to one another, and so we're, it's like we're returning to a continued continuous cosmos. We're in a shift right now, continue going into this now with a much deeper sophistication of understanding because we've gone through this phase of measuring, being able to accurately predict cause and effect like when i do something in the world this is what happens you know we know it's not the which is a fun which is a funny side note but we know it's not the the god of knocking things over that makes the thing fall over it was no yeah yeah no we call them laws of physics and they're all if you're a scientist is god yeah like but maybe reality is so strange and weird that there also is like a god of the knocking things over that gets to take part in when i but the, the god of knocking things over in that specific time during a certain period of time during the day. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. If the universe is as infinite as it seems, it might just be acting on more, more multi-dimensional levels than we can possibly imagine at once. Yeah, why not? Everything. <laughs> Everything. If I was the universe, I'd go ahead and do it. Why not? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because the, the ancient wisdom schools also quite universally refer to the absolute as changeless. And it's changeful. Well, because it's perfectly changeless, perfectly changeful. It's nothing and everything. Yeah. You know, this constant flowering that from a perfect stillness, perfect uh, solitude of oneness. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to start losing words the more we try and talk about the transcendent, but let's get back into yeah, right. this now. <laughs> Plucking them out of our heads. I will not be discussed. Yeah, no, yeah. No <laughs> word can name it. No word can touch it. All words point towards it, but they're very easy to misconstrue. And Yeah, it's, it's a funny game. Great cosmic joke. All right, back to it, Verbeke. We're pilgrims. We don't belong here. We belong there. Yeah. Now, as I keep saying, I mean, some, pe some people, of course, will literalize this, and this is really one world and another world. Most people will see this work. We're talking about Plato and others. They're understanding this as a mythological representation for the process of self-transcendence and self-transformation. Once again, we see the acceptation, just like the shamans were engaged in acceptation, we see the acceptation of that shamanic ability into this new mythological framework. Okay, so there's three places that I want to talk about in particular about this, because they're the ones that we're going to talk a lot about. I will mention... Uh, China periodically throughout, especially when I talk about Taoism. But I want to talk about Greece and ancient Israel because those are the two foundational world mythologies for us. Those are two places in which the actual revolution took place in a way that has become deeply, deeply constitutive of what we are, how we are still here in our minds, the way we experience ourselves and the world. I also want to talk about India because India is the source of that, of that, how do I put it? That source of the confluence between Buddhism and the Western world that we talked about in the first session together, the, the mindfulness revolution. Mindfulness is a psychotechnology that came from India. So the axial revolution of Siddhartha Gautama and the Buddha, we're going to talk about that. And what I want to talk about is how each one of these areas, in addition to the axial psychotechnologies of literacy and coinage, alphabetic literacy and coinage, right, how they also develop particular psychotechnologies that have become internalized. A lot of what you think is natural to you, just part of how your mind works, is actually culturally internalized. It has been generated historically, and you have internalized it culturally, and you think of it just as how your mind works. Think again about literacy. It is hard for you to remember, and I mean to reenact what it was like to not be able to think in, right, like literate terms, um, to imagine words. In a similar way, a lot of these ways of thinking, these psychotechnologies, have become so second nature to us that we forget the historical origin. And that's problematic. Because the degree to which we don't have a historical understanding is the degree to which we are going to be ignorant of the historical factors that are driving the meaning crisis. Let me foreshadow that meaning crisis right now. So this is a mere foreshadowing. We're going to come back to it. This is a mythological way of thinking which allows us to articulate and train the psychotechnologies of the axial revolution, these 
psychotechnologies of self-transcendence, of wisdom and enhanced meaning. But the problem is, this mythology is failing for us now. The scientific worldview is destroying the possibility of this for us in a way that might seem sort of cosmically ironic the scientific worldview is returning us to a continuous cosmos there is no radical difference in kind between you and the primates that you evolved from naturally there isn't some radical difference in kind between your mind and your embodied existence right science is leveling the world we're returning to a one world. We're going to talk about that. But if we can no longer live in this mythology, and that's what mythologies are. They're, they, they have to be livable. People claim to believe this. Don't tell me what you believe. Tell me what you can practice. Tell me what's livable for you. For most of us, we can't live this anymore. We still talk this way but we can't live it. So here's part of the problem. This is a foreshadowing. How do we salvage the ability to cultivate wisdom, self-transcendence, enhance meaning, overcome self-deception, realize, realize who we are and how the world is when we can no longer use the mythological worldview in which it was born? We are going through a re-embedding. It's been progressive and increasing. Right? Copernicus and Galileo re-embed us. Darwin re-embeds us. Einstein re-embeds us. We're, the, we're being re-embedded back into the physical world, but we don't want to lose all that we gained through the great disembedding. How do we reconcile those? How do we live with the legacy of the actual revolution when we can no longer inhabit its worldview. That's part of the problem. Okay, whew. And I think he's about to give us another part of the problem here, but just to pause real fast. Um, if you guys are following, he, he's hitting on something so powerful, and what he's foreshadowing here is, gives you a little bit of a preview into to where this series is going to go. Um, Yes, we went from alphabetic literacy and coinage to internalized cultural conditioning patterns, thinking in language. Um, we have our ignorance of historical factors that's causing us to wonder why we are in this moment of breakdown and, and what can be done uh, in any great way. Um, continuous cosmos, that's the, the access to a sense of self-transcendence, the wisdom schools. The ways of learning how to bring ourselves into accord with the reality around us. Um, yeah, we, we've lost that and we're trying to figure out how to hold on to these old mythological structures that were so useful for helping us embed ourselves into a continuous cosmos. Yeah, and the problem is, is the, 
those myths are not applicable. Like you touched, like last well, they're all clashing together that. too. They're competing. Well, with sure, one you know, like, like you got like recently. neo-paganism and then like the the neo-Marxism. Yeah, yeah. Like we're trying to go back and like redo and reimagine things. Neo-Christianity, like, neo-Buddhism. Well, the yeah. solution is we need to start actively creating yeah, watered-down mindfulness, corporatized and yeah, academic forms of of the things. Um, but, go go on. Um, yeah, so. We need to create our own myths. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, well, because that's what was done before. They created yes. their own myths to cre- create, a, you know, new stories to connect the people with an understanding of. We're learning how to do world. it. We're trying to right now. Some of it's hackneyed. Some of it's forced. Some of it's overdone. Some of it's just some awkward. Of it's right you know, on it's, just, point. it's trying to yeah. it's trying to grow and it's bumping. You know, mm-hmm. awkward mm-hmm. teenagers in our evolution at this point. You know. We are, yeah. It's, the, it's the, the voice is cracking. Yeah, you got to overstep a bound to figure out where the bound is. It's just like a kid playing around with different objects to learn the gravity and physics of them and how different things can be handled and what happens when that bowl of Cheerios falls down onto the floor. And, yeah. well, and he mentioned, you know, like, and I don't know if he was necessarily, if he would say this, but, you know, science, <coughs> science isn't the, you know, good savior of this story it's it's the leveler you know i'll give it that it, but it's helped us accurately predict measure <coughs> but it's gotten to the point where like, it, it, i know a lot of scientists that are pretty nihilistic yeah. in a lot of ways because it's like well it doesn't ex- yeah. it doesn't explain the trends in like or well it set itself up with anachronistically with i think that's right <laughs> opposingly with um, religion, with the sacred, with the idea of spirit, with the idea, with a lot of, you know, it just it was very materialistic. Well, and in very itself, little. It, it, it can. And then the Bible, you know, that Christianity tried to compete with that by becoming more and more literal version of itself. Um, and we lost a lot of the access to some of the deep metaphor there. And I can now still survive to some extent. We're still somehow understanding deep, broad cultural things. He's going to get into that too, though the yeah. the grammar that Christianity gave us, uh, whether we're religious or not, how much it is a part of our culture and way of thinking, how we treat others and, sure. and things like that. Well, it's it's the it's the last great this is quite, quite a compelling the last great myth, myths that we had as far as you know Western culture goes. Like those were the last great myths, and Jesus was the last great teacher, mm-hmm. if you will, and there's teachers before him and. Before him, when each the, age has a teacher and a myth that goes with it, and we're creating our myth now, mm-hmm. which we got a pretty good one. The idea that we all should, you know, like strive to, you know, have equal opportunity, you know, and and just like the America is know, a conglomeration of cultures, sure, yeah. and previous religions are conglomerations of the previous religions yeah, sure. that grouped yeah, well, together, fought, and coalesced, and combined, yeah. and became something new. And that's happened over and over and over again throughout history on both hemispheres. Um, so yeah, I think we're in, we're in that kind of a process here, and that's that's hard to understand. Um, but there is a sense of the transcendent that all the ancient mystery schools and religions share. They all they all discover the same common motifs, you know, the sense of of oneness, uh, bliss, of the nature of reality seeming to be synonymous with love, some kind of love beyond love, just very source of love, unconditional, as well. Um, and we were taught about the embodiment of that through Christ and Buddha and, and other people throughout history. So now we recognize Jesus as the way. We recognize Buddha having recognized the way as well. And they all 
pick up where each other leave off, it seems, mm-hmm. as well. You know, they complement each other when it comes to the deepest truths that they all seem to speak to and have discovered. It's, it's quite a beautiful thing how there is this golden thread that runs through and, and the mystics of all these various mystery or so wisdom would you schools. Say God is a tailor. Always get along really well and they're talking the same way with one another, you know, even though they're coming from completely different backgrounds. What what'd you say there? Uh, so you're saying God is a tailor, you know, is weaving. Yeah, around. right. Yeah. Yeah. Or the carpet great, maker. Great yeah. weaver. Yeah. But uh, one thing, though, before we go on, mm-hmm. you mentioned, um, you know, things that you think are just natural, how your brain work are actually socially taught. Um, yeah. Yeah. To, that's that's spot on. And like how you how you think is dependent on your culture well, okay, um, not just like language separating culture. cultures, but the la- you know the language culture. You know, we are a culture of science all around the world. We're the mm-hmm. culture of science, but that changes how you think. Because if you look at the old stories, you're like why why would people think that? That's that's you know what and why would they do that? Oh, that's dumb or whatever. And I look you know I look at normal people, and I'm not quite normal, so I'm looking at that. I'm like, why would you do that? Well, actually, it makes sense. Like. You see groups of people, they hang out, they learn off of each other, they do things, you know, why did, you know, like fleek, you know what that word means, or like any of these other words, how do they use them, and like, like, it, I, I not to get pessimistic, man, but it's, it's, it's kind of like, man, I think we're doomed, like, with the, I don't actually think that, but it's like, man, it's like, if that's the case, and it really is, it's like, we're kind of doomed, you know. I think if we don't, if we don't get give it really weird, really bizarre, maybe very difficult. And it's in happening some cases, so fast right now, too. In some ways. That's the confusing thing is like everything's changing so fast, and we're at but, a point where we really need to like start making some sense. Yeah, and I you think know? that we're we're wrestling for that right now. Yeah. Um, and and people like Verbeke are helping us what, get there. What if and there's guys that have been following this for you know like Verbeke has recognized this meaning crisis and he's made it a, a this is like a masterwork. This is his life's work, you could say. Yeah. And he recognized this coming a long time ago. And there's a lot of futurists and systems theorists that have been following um, the potential looming crisis as well and predicting it and calling out for various measures from local governments and this and that. And, you know, getting mixed reactions. Um, but yeah, now, now, now shit's getting real. And we all can feel that sense of of destabilization. Yeah. And well, we're all feeling that same anxiety. We feel the churn. How did he term it? He said like strangers in our own world. Didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's definitely a, a, a misalignment of where we think of ourselves in the world and where we actually are in the world and how we make sense of being in those two places. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're coming back to this continuous cosmos now, and that's why, because we're feeling the ground shift beneath our feet. We're, we're changing our sense of perspective on reality. And, even, and it is ironic how science is rec- recognizing that there's actually this intrinsic interconnectedness to everything. Like Einstein said, that our sense of separateness is an optical delusion, of, literally a delusion of consciousness, as he put it. That's quite a thing to say. But that is the actual nature of awareness when you get down to the bottom of it and it does feel that way it feels synonymous with everything around it um yeah so how do we salvage the wisdom and the self-transcendence when we can no longer use the mythical worldview 
Well, we well, got, we got we that. Make our we own myths. Start then. developing our own myths, and, oh. and, and I, ideal is that the whole world can embrace and get around. And well, we got the perfect media to do it. We got books. We got movies. We got video games. Like all different types of very yeah. interactive. And I don't even think it's very complex. I think it all really does begin with that thing that we call love. What else is there that we all agree on that we all like and appreciate and value the most in this life? Yeah. You know, it's our relationships when we look back. It's love. And that experience of truth and beauty and being in accord with that, you know, you experience that sense of flow. You experience moments of blissfulness and joy and uh, a serene, fluid way of being. The more that we relax into uh, this this loving orientation to, to life itself. And we must include our own selves in that, which is really hard to do especially as, as we've been conditioned to measure ourselves and compare ourselves to one another. And, uh, we've been conditioned you know, just to self-love. We think separately from everything. We think of ourselves separate as the tree outside and the sun and everything. And it's really, uh, you know, all, all these things are part of us. Yeah. Let's yeah. get back to it, guys. Oops, i got to change the screen here. Here we go. It's only part. Now, the place I want to turn to first is ancient Israel. As I mentioned, some of you have probably read parts of the Bible, or at least heard parts of the Bible, although biblical illiteracy is rising. Um, And that's problematic, Uh, not because I think people should be Christians or Jews. I'm not here to proselytize. But the degree to which you don't have a grasp of the grammar of the Bible is a degree to which you don't have a grasp of the grammar of your own cognition. And you may say, I'm an atheist. I don't care. That's irrelevant. I'm not talking about what you say. I'm talking about how you think. There's a big difference there. Grammar is how you put thoughts together. It's not the vocabulary. It's not what you say. And So this is what Nietzsche meant. Like... When he said, I fear we are not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar. We still talk this way. We still are filled with the God grammar of the Bible. And you say, no, I'm not. Yes, you go to a movie and you watch the person who falls in some way. And then they have an insight and they are redeemed and they find their way back. Maybe it's through Alcoholics Anonymous or they come out of addiction. That's biblical grammar. Okay? Again, what matters here is how it shapes our sense of self and world. I'm not advocating for a particular religion, but of course I am going to talk about the Judeo-Christian heritage precisely because I want to explain to you how these psychotechnologies have become part of the very grammar, not only of your cognition, but of your existential sense of being. So, there's an important psychotechnology that's invented, or at least significantly developed, by ancient Israel. Perhaps it was influenced from Persia uh, through Zarathustra, but it's this idea. And when I say it, it's going to seem to you like, of course, but it's not of course. Even saying of course is important. Remember that. Here's the idea. It's a psychotechnology 
of understanding time as a cosmic narrative, as a story. It's applying something, again, that's universal. All cultures tell stories, and we'll talk about the cognitive science of this later. But you see, this isn't a story. This is a circle. It's a cycle. What kind of structure does a story have? Well, a story has a beginning. It has some crucial climax, turning point. And, it and there's a resolution. There's a direction to it. There's a purpose to it. So you get this idea of cosmic history, of using our skills for story to explain how the cosmos is unfolding through time. It's a radical idea. So why is it radical? Well, notice the difference here. This, this is not an open future. Right? You're condemned to repeat. So cultures where cyclical time is still prevalent, Eastern cultures, for example, the repetition of the cycle is onerous. It's horrible. People think reincarnation, for example, within an Indian context is a wonderful, I'll be born again. That's no, that's horrible. You, what you're trying to do is get free from those cycles. Because doing this again and again and again and again and again is terrifying. Moksha, you want freedom. Nirvana, you want cessation. You want release from the cycle because there is no purpose to it. But here, the future's open. Your actions now can change the future. If you for figure out how to participate, Remember that participatory knowing. If you figure out how to participate in the story, your actions can change the future. There isn't the all-at-once creation at the beginning. There's an ongoing creation through history. And you can participate with God in the ongoing creation of the future. How? Because... How do stories operate? They operate in terms of meaning and morality. How you make meaning, the moral content of your action decides how things are going to go. See, this is why the God of ancient Israel is such a different God. If you look at the gods of the pre-axial world, look, you've got a God and it's a God of a place, a particular function. Here's the god of weaving, or here's the god of ancient thieves, right? The gods are located in place. They're tied to a function. They have no significant moral arc attached to them. What's the god of the Old Testament? What's he or she like? It's not bound to time and place. Think of the great story of the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. Where, right? Here you have the Israelites, and they are imprisoned. They're imprisoned in the epitome of the Bronze Age world, Egypt. And God comes and liberates them and sets them on a journey towards a future that is promised, the promised land. This God moves through time and space. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the open future. That's why at first he has no name. 
Because to name something is to locate it, to specify it, to tie it down. And for the longest time, this God has no name. And then, when Moses finally challenges it and he reveals his name, he says, it's badly translated in the older versions of the Bible, it's often translated as, I am that I am. But it actually in the Hebrew means, I will be what I will be. I am the God of the open future. And you can participate with me in this, this ongoing creation of the future. Because you can shape it. You can cause it to come to resolution, but you can also cause it to go off course. The idea, when I said of course to you, remember? The sense of time passing as a course. We still take courses in universities. This is what we have here. And you're looking for turning points. Wow, man. Oh, but of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, you don't want to get off course. You want to be on course. How wild is this? Okay, so we're, we're in this stage of time where we've been seeing life in cycles for such a long time, but that has no meaning. And we gained meaning from these ancient myths that are now starting to... Our, our, our involvement in them is starting to disintegrate and we're starting to meet all of each other's myths and we do need to ge generate a new story for the world, don't we? Uh, because it's, it's breaking us up because we're trying to figure out how do we navigate, how do I orient myself in this world, starting to feel increasingly meaningless. And that, that would be because, well, grammar is how we think, how we put things together. And before, time was like a constant story that we were involved in. Now we feel like it's not... Well, that's the thing. That, it feels like a Thinking cycle. Lot, well, of, uh, how often do we continuous. Think, think of the future and not as a, prom like he said, a promise, but now we're looking at the future as if it's, as if it's a threat. Yeah. Actively, you know, not to point fingers or nothing or say anything like that, but, you know, the, no, that's yeah. kind of how we view it. It's like, you know, well, doom and gloom, end of the world, if we don't do this, oh, yeah, then all the competing sides the promise is going to be versions of, of future that the other is, is uh, promulgating or popularizing as a threat. And so take that story that the, that's, that's every, yeah, the Exodus story that um, he brought up, you know, in short, you had, you know, a group of, you know, these people, mm -hmm. the promised people in this case, and then they were stuck. They were stuck in a place of the past that is mm -hmm. not working for them anymore. No. Then they go on a journey into the future. Yeah. And then the God of those people is not a God of a place, mm -hmm. but a God of the perpetual next. Yes. The future. The, the, the ever-ongoing, ever-involvement. The continuous cause. walking circles is pointless. If you're going to do the cyclical thing, spirals. So at least you're still going in a, you know. Yeah, because we had a story to explain how the cosmos is unfolding in time to us. So we had a sense of where we are. We had an anchor mm -hmm. into reality. We had a sense of where it was going. Even if it wasn't entirely accurate all the time, it at least gave us something very powerful and palpable to believe in. And so we're, we're now in this sense of having lost our direction as a species. And at all of our individual cultures, cultures competing over which way to go 
are now like compete within themselves. And so it's, it's very hard to see what the future is, but that's because it's a story that we are supposed to be involved in. And we're, we're coming back to continuous cosmos because we're realizing what we forgot along the way. Well, of course we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. We use of course for obvious. So that just shows you how of you course. think, oh, well, yeah, because things that are on course, aren't they obvious? Of course they are. Right. Yeah. Easily <laughs> observable. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, like, obvious. yeah, okay. And that's how you think too. It's like just this idea, like you mentioned about, you know, the way you think is, well, if you're in the West, the way you think is based off of Judeo Christian thinking during this developmental period. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, and, yes. Oh, of, of course it is. That's obvious. You go it to a is. movie, uh, that, the person, the, the person yeah. falls, then they find meaning in some way. They go to get into NA or something like that or whatever. And they have to have and that moment where they're they rushing themselves. And they rise again. And, and, we, and that, that is an internalized psychotechnology. That's a cultural yeah. way of thinking that we've embodied around the world now at this point. And he, he regards that, that India was very much a meeting between the East and the West. Yeah. And Persia, it gets into this as well later on. Um, and both of these act, acted as, as like points where everything could turn from and everything could meet and feed in. So we, around the world, we started to, and this was a good way to orient ourselves to life, uh, was to figure out how can we transcend our current state of being and improve it. And we, so the story started to tell us how can we improve it in the best way for one and all? And how, and how do we break this, the continuous plotting torture cycle? Yeah, so we, be, we started yeah. to realize the great wisdom of love, of an orientation of unconditionality to life and one another, and the sense of connectedness with one another. And yeah, uh, yeah so reincarnation it's not a good thing no you know? no you don't see it as a good thing no know? it's not if look um, i have a certain conception of reincarnation we want to get past the cycle i want this to there's be the no last one to yeah, yeah, yeah you want it to be the last one you want to do it right um unless you're feeling really nihilistic about this one you're like ah, i hope that maybe i can get a fresh chance on the, on the next one but or i'm not really done, I, or i'm not done yet, I got if you don't do, do good then you kind of go backwards a little yeah, bit, yeah. Or, or you stay where you're at saying and is, so you have to repeat everything over again a man who lives as, as an animal comes back as an animal a man who lives in his passions comes back as a man, man. but Oof. a man who yes. lives yeah. ahead it comes back ahead yeah, yeah. Um, most of us are probably just repeating most of the same mistakes over and over again i think that's the kabbalah or my because Kabbalah would be the uh, mystic Judaism. Yeah, I think that's where where that came from. Which is basically, it's like if you live your life in your in your lusts and your pleasures and the, the beastier forms of yourself, uh -huh. the next universe that you're going to be a part of or your placement within this universe, your next experience is going to be as an animal. And I don't think right. they meant it literally as in like reincarnating like Eastern philosophy or Indian philosophy. I think they meant every day. Every day, like you know, you die every day, every time you go to sleep. But if you live that day in your animal senses, you become more beast. But well, if yeah, you're passionate yeah, being human, you just stay in the same place, which is there's not the, the goal. debate over whether many of the and, and the, uh, you could say the main wise men, the main the wise guys, teachers actually believed in reincarnation or if it was like a social but tool it's a good benefit for that kind of works keep, for keep your everyday place, too. Yeah. So I choose to look at it like that because it's more useful for me on my everyday. Right. Live like an animal, come the next day I'm going to be an animal, but live ahead thinking, trying to rise above, if you will. I do like the idea of thinking about every sleep as a death and every uh, morning awakening as a rebirth. Well, you get hit with the DMT when you go into uh, a <laughs> yeah, you do. so, yeah. like, I mean, 
so yeah. many dies. So the same me- same mechanisms. <laughs> it increases its output. It might be constant all the time and, and uh, yeah. actually integral to our conscious awareness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would almost guarantee. Of course it is. <laughs> it, it does seem that way. Yeah, there was a neuroscientist I was watching on an episode of um, AMP podcast, Aubrey Marcus's podcast, and he was talking about recent studies that he was involved in that seemed to be pointing to that. That it's uh, at levels as high as serotonin in our brains, which so sounds pretty yeah, substantial. Yeah, yeah serotonin is yeah. one of the main ones that does, yeah. does all the business. So. Yeah, at all times. And then it peaks, yeah. It peaks when you sleep. Apparently it peaks when you're born, when you die. It Very peaks large when amounts. when you are sleeping. It peaks when you're, you're awake. awake. <laughs> it peaks when you meditate long enough for goodness sake. So, yes, yeah, Santa Claus is DMT. I don't know. He's an old shaman. I think it's up the, the red and the white small, mushrooms but, in the you know, yeah, yeah. We can get into that. I think I might have talked about that on the podcast. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that because you know we both have experience with that one, and that one's perfectly legal. legal and if you crazy write story, it, yeah, you'll, you'll get to find out that Santa is actually real, and he's a oh, shaman oh, in northern oh. Siberia. Yeah. He dresses in red and white. He travels by Comes way of a reindeer of your yurt. His reindeer Comes down the chimney of your yurts if your yurts windows and door are snowed in. Um, yeah, the Amanita muscaria mushroom that grows in symbiosis with pine trees. And there's a lot of Christian Winter solstice celebration or... for hundreds to thousands of years in the northern regions around Siberia. Yeah. And there's a lot of Christian symbology. Uh, symbology Dresses that in the color of the mushroom. very much like the mushroom. Like the Pope. Like next time you see the Pope people, not this Pope because he dresses all Presence in white. under the trees. Because that's the Amanita panthera that... A panther oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Look at the like, older popes. Yeah, look at the older popes. Though they're all Amanita muscarias, and even yeah. some in Le- Learn about spots. them; they're, they're interesting. I, I do have a little Facebook page I came up with a while back that's just devoted to collections yeah, of no, early Christmas card Christmas cards from the early 1900s. Yeah, um, a little tear cheek to, and you can see like kids picking mushrooms yeah, under the yeah, trees, yeah. and yeah, the idea of bringing a tree into our home every winter. Yeah, and this ancient druidic rite is beautiful. We incorporated it into Christianity for good reason because it's, it's a beautiful ritual. So I get the, at this point where I guess probably we're coming back into is uh, things are blending and turning points as is what's on the screen. Uh, you'll see when we come back in. But I think yeah, I think this is a I good time for a, a quick break if you like. Uh, we'll just take a quick five. Yeah, yeah. That's and a good uh, we're gonna get right back to it. If you guys need to, you know, this one's gonna be a little restroom. Grab yourself a drink. Get some popcorn. Grab a notebook if you want to, you know, take notes and follow along. And if you enjoy this series, definitely check out this uh, whole series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, is on YouTube, and you can watch it without our commentary, so you can catch up or dig deeper or watch it. Oh yeah, please. yeah. No, I like, encourage to share this around to anybody you think would be even remotely interested. Even if they're not forced it on them, they might no, like it. Yeah, if this was in every <laughs> high school, I think we could change the world at a rapid rate and in quite a beautiful way. Yeah. But yeah. So we'll be right back, guys. Stay tuned. All right, we are back. We are, we are back. back. Let's uh, let's roll him back a little bit since we took a little bit of break. Uh, let's just do so that. We can catch catch up to what he's saying now. Yeah. Because if you're anything like me, you've probably lost where we were. Yeah, we're gonna get up to oh, this turning thing. point now. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. If you the should, glory. <laughs> you can actually get some really funny, verbaki. He's very expressive. I'll give him that. Okay, we'll we'll work with this. Okay. Hundred resolution, but you can also cause it to go off course. Off course. The idea when I 
said, said of course, course to you, you. remember? There will be a penalty. The sense of time passing as a course. We still take courses in universities. This is what we have here. And you're looking for turning points. Turning along the course. Where the course turns. And of course, that's what you're looking for in a movie. You know at some level that none of that is how the real world works. You know at some level, come on, you do, that your life doesn't unfold like a movie. Yet you love it. You love going to a movie. You love seeing this structure and participating in it. And there's the great turning point where something is learned or a problem is solved and there's resolution and the future is now made. So, this God is interested in, becomes progressively, now, again, you can't point and say, there, there's where it changed in the Bible, but you can see there's aspects of a preaxial God, but as you read through the New, as you read through the Old Testament, God becomes more and more axial. He becomes more and more the deity of something that you now take for granted. Progress. The idea, and right, for us it's not just an idea, right? It's, 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 it's in the lifeblood. It's in the very bones of your sense of self in your life. Is your life progressing? Or are you stuck? Is it moving forward? This is this idea. History progresses, and it can degenerate, and it can improve. God becomes more and more a representative of that. Now, there's a technical term for these turning points, kairos. It's developed by the theologian Paul Tillich. And this is this sense of the crucial turning point, getting things at the right time and the right place to turn things, either right back on course or to further develop them. Now let's talk about that because, again, we're going to go back to talking about these these senses of knowing that we've lost touch with. Important is this sense, the ath. So people sometimes note, and often humorously, that the Bible will talk about sex, sexual intercourse, with the verb knowing. So you'll get things like Adam knew his wife Eve. And he's like, what, what does that mean? And it means has sex with. It's da'ath in this sense. And it's like, what? Why? What? We don't use sex as a metaphor for knowledge. It's, you'd be surprised how many cultures actually do. Because this is, again, this is a participatory sense. There's a course here, and you're participating in it. Now, what do I mean by participating? You don't know it from the outside, just having beliefs about it or just having skills. You know it in this way. You know it by identifying with it. You change it while it's changing you. And you're changing it while it's changing you. You are immersed in it like a stream, like a course of a river. You are participating in it. When you're making love with somebody, you are participating in them. 
you're identifying with them, empathizing with them, resonating with them. You are changing them as they are changing you. And it rises, forgive me the pun, to a climax, to a turning point, to a resolution. See, in ancient Israel, faith, this term has become useless for us now, but faith didn't mean believing ridiculous things for which there is no evidence. That is, that is not, that is a recent idea. That is not what it meant. Faith was your sense of dahath. Faith was your sense that you're in this reciprocal realization. You're in course. You're on course. You're involved and evolving with things. It's your sense, ah, I'm on course. Or even your sense, ah, this is the turning point, and I, I know what to do. I know who I need to change into. I knew how to turn myself and things. Notice you have this in your relationships. You'll often be asking yourself, how's this relationship going? Is it on course? Is it progressing? Is it growing? Is this the kind of person I want to be? What's my, am I becoming? What's my sense of how I'm changing? Is this all going well? That's the ath. Now, of course, you can get it wrong. You can think you're on course when you're actually dramatically off course. You're trespassing, to use older biblical language. You're, you're walking off the path. You're no longer on course. That's that's the a basis of a word that we can't use anymore again because of our biblical literacy and the fact that we've lost touch with this sense of knowing. In fact, this word, many people treat this word almost like, like a, a comical word, sin. Sinning isn't just doing something very immoral. Right? In the New Testament, the word that translates this is when you're shooting a bow and arrow. So if you've done archery, you can't shoot for where your eye tells you to look because you'll actually miss the bullseye. You have to have a kind of faith to sense right, where you need to actually shoot so you don't miss the mark. So the idea here is I'm trying to sense the course of things. And if I'm self-deluded or illusory, I'm actually dramatically off course without realizing it. That's the original meaning. And so the idea is that human beings are thrown into this universe in which they have the option, because it's an open future, of participating in the creation of the future. But of course, human beings sin in the sense that they are self-deceptive. They go off course. So notice what the Hebrews are doing. They're taking this movement from the everyday world to the real world, and they're turning it into a historical story. The way you go from the false world to the real world is you start now, and you move towards the promised land. They understand it historically. But human beings sin. They make decisions that steer the course of history away 
from its culmination. And so the idea is God has to intervene periodically. God has to redeem. God has to do something to wake people up, to remind them, to help them to sense how they've gone off course and so that they can come back on course. And so what you have is you have in the Old Testament, you have the creation of the prophetic tradition, prophets. Here's another thing that we've lost the sense of. A prophet is not somebody who, for, who tells the future, like some sort of psychic. Okay? Prophecy isn't about telling you what's going to be happening 200 or 300 years from now. Prophecy means a telling forth. Yeah, the job of the prophet is to wake you up right now to how you are off course. So a better analogy isn't the psychic. When you, so when you go to the psychic and, oh, you will meet a tall, dark stranger or some crap like that. That's not a good analogy for a prophet. A better prophet is when you and your loved one go into therapy and the therapist says something and it wakes you up to, holy crap, this is how I'm going wrong. This is how I'm off course. This is how I need to get back on track. That's the job of a prophet. And what you have in the prophetic tradition is you have an increasing emphasis on the morality of human decision-making. More and more and again, it's not perfect. There's all kinds of preaxial stuff that's still woven in there and mixed up with it and mashed up with it. But you do have more and more this discussion, this exhortation to wake up to your moral responsibility for helping everybody to get back on track and to turn things back towards the promised land. This idea of justice and righteousness and waking up so that we get back on track, become endemic. Now, now think about how much, and I've tried to show you through examples, how much this is just how you naturally think of yourself. You think of yourself as somebody who's on a journey. You're starting here, and you're trying to make a better self, and you're trying to make the right decisions, and you're trying to steer things. You want your life to progress. You want your culture to progress. Try to think about what, how you would understand yourself, how you would judge yourself, and you couldn't make use of this notion of progress. Oh boy, yeah. How would you judge yourself if you couldn't make use of this notion of progress? You know, you'd probably become really nihilistic and think it's just all going to end and you might as well just... Yeah, well, nihilism. Yeah, because we're so used to thinking in story. We still have this leftover continuous cosmos grammar, but it's been eroding and falling apart because we've demystified so much of it. Because uh, so much of it became, we started to take it super literally as well yeah. to try and compete with materialist science in yeah. uh, the the modern age post enlightenment. So he gets into sin, getting off course to miss the mark. Um. 
a funny little thing. This longing to return to continuous cosmos that is in us. We're trying to figure out how to do that. Return to one world perspective orientation that is livable. Um, okay, go ahead. Uh, just a little funny thing, you know, being like we was talking about, you know, to know them. To um, know. To, to like, you, you yeah. do it for intercourse. Oh, the for intimate inter- intercourse. intercourse. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Of <laughs> Inter. So not just, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah as yeah. an intertwined. Interrelating, intertwined, interconnection. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, so outside while we're taking the break, it was kind of, you know, talking about us and our nature with God and the only non-blasphemous way to say that humans, you know, basically make God better is basically what he said. It's, it, you know, it helps you. You uh, yeah. You become participatory. Yeah, participatory exactly. knowing each is enhancing is the other and continuously involved in what he calls da'at, what he referred yeah. to as that. T- yeah. well, where was that term from? Did you catch that? No. no. Old Testament Hebrew, maybe. Somebody let da'at. us know in the comment comments. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. So we have time as a constant story. God is growing up to us. He's been growing up to us for a long time. Um, we don't know how to do without this orientation towards the transcendent, towards an ultimate ideal, a progression story, becoming better than we are now. That mm-hmm. this is an illusory world, and there's something realer than this, you know, that we're working towards. All of that to allow ourselves to be able to navigate and orient ourselves. Um, so we're trying to get back to that God of becoming, of ongoing creation. We're at this turning point. This revolution, yeah, and we're looking for resolution in this story and how the future will be made. Um, God has become more and more axial, and it became like the deity of progress and 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 lost. Yeah, we lost our sense of knowing. Something turns around, Mm -hmm. and so we've lost our sense of knowing that we are in a participatory at part process with this continuous cosmos with the divine or the transcendent or something greater than ourselves and so we feel very destabilized somehow this is something that is very important to humans well it's helped us moralize ourselves he talked about how we started to develop systems of morality around this time so we become increasingly self-reflective i yeah. guess it, it just guess it doesn't fit with our modern notions of moral or not morality but no what, but our, we are our, our sensibilities on how things are it's like yeah you know, like religion and mysticism and spirituality are either thought to be like some oppressive thing or some wishy-washy for sure yeah we are like philosophy to a certain extent if you know philosophy is just for those you know thinking people that just you know like like to no actually it's really important all all these things are very important yeah Yeah. and you know our, our technological age where you know science has a solution for that for mm-hmm. 99.9999999% of everything. It's just that point oh 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 1% that is the most important. You know, mm-hmm. we've got all our pleasures and our comforts dealt with. You know, it's pretty comfortable, mm-hmm. but we're still lacking something very We're deep. lacking something, yet we are increasingly aware of our act, action upon the world and the importance of our responsibility for what we have made of this world. And so you see people uh, coming into this sense of recognizing how we've been trespassing yeah that's lying to ourselves using bullshit on one another look just look at how politicians and the government or media works um advertisement if you've ever been in a small town and you see how how we do it to ourselves within our friends groups too you know um the the trespassing i thought 
that, that was kind of a revelation for me, the way he broke mm-hmm. it down is, you know, trespassing is stepping off course and thinking you're yeah. still on course. So you're, yeah. you know, you're on the wrong trajectory. And the, you know, yeah. what, what is that prayer that we, you know, if you went to church, you've said, but, you know, forgive those that, you know, forgive me for my trespasses and those who have trespassed upon us. Well, mm. so the, the marks that I've missed and the deviations I've missed, but also the results of other people's deviations on me. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and Forgive it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cause well, if you hold, you know, like, well, you don't want people trespassing on your property or on your like, you know, personal mm-hmm. everything. But if you can't, if you can't forgive, you know, misses of the mark, if you yes. will, if you can't forgive the when sins, someone is off course. Yeah. You know, and that's the whole story of Jesus. He hung on the cross supposedly to forgive everybody everybody's sins all you have to do is just try to stay on course just get just get try to get back to getting back on course yeah and and then you will experience the grace and the blessings and and you do you experience a deep sense of participation again with life um so and the idea of being able to always be forgiven means that okay if you've sinned it's okay to still try and become better today yeah and tomorrow and one way to do it is like you know and make up for and whatever the catholic tradition and you know i've got my qualms with catholicism and everything but i I really respect the being able to go in the booth and talk Mm. to your priest yeah i bet you and you know he knows who you are that little little screen there just that's just for you to feel comfortable help you he knows who you are but there's a relationship between the priest and and their yeah well, like, well, that one's going to respect you completely for it and not judge you as much as they're humanly able. And well, that's not that their, that's not their position. That's not their position. Growing, yeah, they're just well, their, the they, they, they deep congregation believe. is also a cyclical. One helps the other, helps the other. That's why priests usually are supposed to, you know, like kind of be poor. Uh, it used to be is because yeah, they were supposed yeah. to be tied to the community directly. Mm. And what the, mm. the better the community gets, the better they treat their priest. Mm. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I like yeah. That. So, so, so we're so the prophet isn't an oracle. It's more like something like a life therapist that helps people and cultures get back on. Yeah, that good teacher. They help know, us that, orient ourselves. That person that goes, "Hey, <laughs> yeah. oh my god, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah." Maybe the wise waking you up. Yeah, the wise old grumpy man is like, "Hey," and that's why it's keep become doing that so popular right now in these days and in the rise of activism. And, you know, good uses and perhaps bad uses of, of that intention to help wake up, recognize our moral, moral responsibility, a sense of righteousness. We have all experienced um, being self-righteous. Sure. You know. And it's an embarrassing feeling after the fact once mm-hmm. you realize it. Well, you realize that's not the way to, that you're going to get through to somebody. Um but it's like a self-defensive mechanism, well, you know, isn't you, it? You like, I matter, and I'm in accord, and why aren't you? And it makes me feel nervous that you aren't, well, so you're I'm just display madness and anger. With that, they're just shielding themselves from themselves at you. that point. That that mm-hmm. self-righteousness is there missing the mark. Looking they're for trespassing something yeah. upon themselves, yeah. and by doing so, it has a result on you. Like this, you know, the sanctimoniousness and mm-hmm. self-righteousness is, is truly just somebody trying to hide from their, their own their yeah. own selves. So we are trying, though, we're trying to wake up and we're trying to take on a greater sense of moral responsibility, become better stewards of this planet. And we are also in the process of really, you know, destroying our stories. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's sad too, man. There's like, and I've been saying this for a long time, you know, even before getting into this. It's like, look at any culture um, that has ever been, you know, destroyed in history. What has happened? They've lost their traditional stories. And well, if I want to take out large swaths of people over a long period of time, remove their old stories, mm-hmm. their old collective stories that were part of their sense making, their yeah. reasoning. And what if all these stories aren't meant to be taken literally no, necessarily, but they, but it doesn't mean that they're not true so far as, so they're not explaining what life is actually. No, it's, it's made encoded of information in a format that your brain to can live, take it in and how to apply. be in life. Yeah. yeah. Wisdom teachings, you know, moral metaphors and like, I don't know how familiar, ways of being, how yeah. familiar you are with the unnunciated the spider stories, like, you know, bear rabbit and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I remember bear you can't rabbit. take it literally because like, like say that, I, I like the story of the tar baby um, that that helps you from being spiteful. So basically, Brer Rabbit, he's the slickest of the slick, and he how he gets out of his problems is by getting somebody else to you know like he's manipulative, right? Well, he comes across this you know baby looking thing that's all tar, and, and he's got some beef with it. And he's like, "Stupid baby, get out of here!" And he gets mad, slaps the tar baby, gets stuck. Slaps. Yeah, dude. Well, the Nazi spy, but also it's a different period of time, a completely different culture. These stories are old, like old, old, yeah. old, 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 and Eight kind of remade the stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you'll find you know similar stories, but basically the moral of this story: don't go slapping. Like you know, if you've got problems that are present yourself right in front of you, and then you respond harshly, and you get baby. stuck. Um, Where's that story from? That's a, that's African. That's a, what's the, one of the uh, Briar, Briar Rabbit tales. Okay, you know how you got out of it. He bamboozled the bear to, you know, get stuck and pull him, you know, like, oh, wow. he got other people to help him out. The moral of the whole story with Br'er Rabbit is basically, if he didn't have his community, he'd be screwed. He's kind of screwing them over a lot of times, but he's... You're bringing back the biggest memories. Oh, uh, dude, because we were yeah. taught these when we were a kid, man. It's we are like the last yeah. bit of generation to get those stories mm-hmm. just being normal. Like, I had great storytellers when I was a kid, man. Like, people would come around to the elementary school and just... Oh, like, man. Lo- like, all, yeah. the, all the Native American Little stories they could pack in. Be terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, Europe, the European the, stories the are pretty little pigs. Ooh, man, that's a scary one, too. Why? The wolf. Because that was one of the maybe major the causes of death ones... back in the days, dying by wolves. That was yeah, right. common. Yeah. And maybe the reason why the fairy, the European fairy tales get us scared more, say, than, you know, like the Enunciate Spider ones are like, you're like, why is it a tar baby and all that stuff? It's like, well, because culturally speaking, that's how our brain works. So those stories get us in the feels a little bit it's more to shock you but somehow i yeah. think an advantageous thing that we can do is we can start rescuing old stories from everywhere and start becoming multi multi-literate multilingual with all the old stories to reason mm-hmm. out like you know to sift out what the morals of these stories are and mm-hmm. and and also in which periods of time and which places and like because that will help us get a true understanding well, of like trying the to learn stuff on this. the inside that yeah. makes us tick that we're not aware of yeah I think we can develop something like a religion um, that is it practices the, the very you know, heart of all the world's religions, what they've recognized as, as we've spoken of, the supreme unifying principle of life, as Martin Luther King termed it, love. Um, love itself, we can worship and be reverent towards this great mystery of, of love and this force of creation that, it, that somehow is imbued throughout our sense of this ongoing continuous cosmos that we are indeed involved in we, we are literally stardust we need good. atoms to, you know born in the hot furnaces of stars that exploded and spread across space coalesced into planets and then 
became outgrowths of plants and animate beings, animals such as ourselves that are now self-reflective, looking at, back at the stars from whence we came. It's a, it's a trip. Yeah. That's a story. We we need we need we need better love stories. <laughs> Instead of being there's romance, some good ones be out a there. real good love yeah. story. Well, actually, you know, like speaking of that, there's you know, you can watch a movie that's not like you know a romance movie or whatever, but you can feel like you know huge love connections between characters, like the buddy movies, where you have like you know like two strong guys doing their thing around or whatever, but one of them almost dies, and then you have the moment, you know, it's like. Well, that's not romance, but hey, that's a good romance. love story. Yeah, yeah, romance story, you know, that's one example, but yeah. yeah. We, need, we, need a, we need a better love song. But man. romance is, is a part of storytelling, even if it sure. isn't like a couple romance movie, it's, it's still part of it. Well, and also the act of romance yeah. is very much telling a story actively while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. You set up set up the circumstances, throw out the pedals, get everything just right, you know, you know, like, the, not scripted, but, you know, um, directioned. Yeah. Um, kind of thing. Yeah, you're just telling the story in the moment, you know. Yeah. And we like to watch other people do it as well. That's romance movies. I don't know. I'm a little squeamish with that stuff. PDA get down. It's like, I don't want to see people make out on camera. It's gross. <laughs> no. Not gross. Uh. But anyway, so. Yeah, we, we love inter- interconnection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I did. And like he said earlier, it, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, watch a superhero movie. Of course, that's not real. You're not going to be able to go... experiential knowledge. Yeah. That is participatory. Just, just by participating yeah, in it, you, you get the knowledge. It, yeah. it informs you, and it's this continuous, yeah. interchanging, what is that interrelating... That's the nature of God, and it's the, you know, God and us is that relationship that we have with... Kabbalah describes everything the law we of the do. stole, and then ourselves as, like, kiln, which is the word for, like, um, I guess, like, pottery or a vessel, and so we are the law of reception... And the law of bestow mm-hmm. generates gives the sense and our of reality and our receiving it back to the well. If we yeah. receive it consciously as yeah. and then cognizant of, let's give this yeah. be, this experience, this unique experience that God's created back to Himself, and thanks and gratitude and love that He He gives it to me too. Then you create the circuit, yeah, and it's yeah. Uh, that that's the highest state of communion and and being for us as humans, uh, according to that and really all the mystery schools yeah love so I guess we can get back into this now yeah turning point so now we get to awaken further through our explorations with John Berbakis awakening from the human crisis So, what starts to happen is a commitment to more and more trying to cultivate the wisdom of deeply remembering God, which doesn't mean reciting beliefs, it means participating, participating in the ongoing creation of the world, shaping the future, helping yourself, your neighbors, and your society to progress, where that progress is measured mostly in terms of moral improvement, increasing justice, increasing flourishing, increasing sense of people living up to their promise. And this is what I ask you. Do you feel like you're living up to your promise? 
Is it an important thing for you? If it is, and I feel it's probably the case that for many of you it is, that very way of thinking, that's part of the grammar that we have inherited from the Hebrews. It's part of the very way we think. It's part of the warp and woof of our cognition. Now we're going to come back to this strand. We're going to come back and look at a particular way of understanding kairos that became right, central in Christianity. Because what Christianity did is it made a really radical claim. It claimed that this kairos was found in a particular person. And what's that, what, that, what that's going to do is it's going to personalize all of this in a really dramatic way. But before we do that, I want to switch back over to what's happening at a similar time in ancient Greece. So as I mentioned, the psychotechnology of alphabetic literacy is taken to the Greeks, but the Greeks do something that's very important. And it helps to explain right, some of the differences we see in the Greek Axial Revolution from the ancient Hebrew Axial Revolution. Now the Greeks do something that, again, seems inconsequential now, but they add vowels to the alphabet. And it's like, oh wow, so what? Well, the thing is, when you add vowels, you really, again, increase how easy it is to process information. So let's stop here because we need to do a big co cognitive science. Because this ease of processing really matters. So I want to introduce you to an important idea from cognitive science. This is the idea of cognitive fluency. So, we've got increasing experimental evidence for this basic kind of fact. When you increase the ease at which people can process information, regardless of what that information is, they come to believe it is more real, they have more confidence in it, etc. Now, that can be something very simple. It can be as simple as changing the font contrast between the letters and the page. So, Consider two individuals, Tom and Susan. Tom is reading uh, words in which the color contrast between the letters and the page isn't as good as the color contrast that Susan's reading. They're reading exactly the same thing. They can both clearly read it. It's just the font difference makes it easier for Susan than for Tom. They read the same thing. If you ask both of them, well, how true is what you read? Susan's more likely to say that was true. She's more likely to have confidence in, in it, regardless of the content. The fluency of your processing actually increases your confidence in it, your sense of how real the picture it's giving you is. Now, it's not really ease in some simple sense because right, it has to do more with how well your brain is accessing information, applying it. It's very complicated. Right? But what I'm telling you is when I do something that increases your cognitive fluency, you get an enhanced sense of your brain. Your brain get, generates an enhanced sense that you're actually in touch with things. We'll talk about this later. That turns out to be a good policy your brain is using. It's a very good idea for your brain to try and use the fluency of its own processing as a measure of how much it's in touch with reality. By the way, 
When you get a lot of fluency, you of course are going to get into the flow state. So when the Greeks introduced vowels, they improve the fluency of alphabetic literacy. They ramp up how powerful it is. They also do introduce something else. They introduce a standardized reading from left to right, which you now take for granted. Many of you know that other languages go the other way. Hebrew is read this way, for example. That has an impact on your cognition. First of all, it's standardized. That improves the fluency. Why does it improve your fluency? When this is standard, you know always, if you look at Egyptian hieroglyphs, they can go up, they can go down, they can go this way, they can go that way. When you standardize things, that increases the fluency of the processing. So they ratchet up this power of literacy to enhance cognition. They're also developing something else. So the Greeks don't form a unified nation-state. They have individual city-states that are in competition with each other. And in Athens in particular, and Athens is going to be the hotbed of the Axial Revolution in Greece, although not the only place, in Athens you have slowly the emergence of democracy. Now, it's, it's a particularly problematic form of democracy. It's direct democracy. We'll talk about stuff like that later. But what this does is this puts a premium on argumentation and debate. So the Greeks start to sort of speed up the axial revolution in their own cognition. They enhance the effects of alphabetic literacy. They enhance right, the use of reason and reflection. And so they start to do things that, again, don't happen before. Lots of cultures were doing arithmetic, but the Greeks invent mathematics. They invent geometry. They start to create abstract symbol systems for their own sake. Now that's what's going on in what's basically being invented in ancient Greece is this capacity for rational argumentation. That's the psychotechnology. Again, you think of this... Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not claiming that other groups or people are irrational or they can't be reasonable. I'm not being ethnocentric. But you get the explicit training of rational argumentation as a core psychotechnology in ancient Greece. Now that is going to have very important consequences. Now what's interesting again is how this comes in to ancient Greece. I'm going to introduce you to two individuals who are sort of the epitome of the Axial Revolution in Greece. Pythagoras and Socrates. You know Pythagoras, of course, because of an important mathematical theorem, the Pythagorean theorem. Now, Pythagoras is a very interesting person because he seems to be, he, he belongs to, Cornfield makes this argument very well, right? Cornfield 
Kornford makes this argument very well. He belongs to a group, a group of individuals that are around, you know, sort of just coming out of that dark age, around 600 BCE. These individuals were called the divine men. Now, it's pretty clear that these men seem to represent a rediscovery of shamanic psychotechnologies. They seem to, they have a lot of associations with sort of capacities for healing, for flying through the air. And so a lot of this is, is legendary, right? It's mythological, it's not literal. But Pythagoras is a, a real person. Now, of course, there's lots and lots of legendary material around him, but the legend even points towards these important aspects. He seems to have gone through shamanic training. <clears throat> he engaged in something called the Thunderstone Ceremony, which involved him isolating himself in a cave, going through some radical transformation, and then coming out of it. He seems to have experienced soul flight because he talked about the capacity for the psyche to be liberated from the body. He was very tall and he dressed like a god, but no one found it offensive for him to do so, at least not the people that followed him. He discovers, and this, right, he, he discovers the octave. He discovers that there's mathematical proportions in the world. He comes to this realization that this new psychotechnologies of rational reflection and mathematics give us access to abstract patterns that we are not directly aware of. Like, we all take it for granted that we know what an octave is and we know that it can be expressed by ratios, but that was his discovery. So what he does is he takes this idea about realizing through music and math these abstract patterns, and then he links them to the project, the shamanic ability to engage in self-transcendence. He comes up with the idea that we're somehow trapped in this world, but we can learn to fly above it. We can fly free, like the shaman. But he's allied it explicitly to the actual project of self-transcendence, of getting in touch with the rationally realized patterns. Because that will liberate us. That will change and transform us. Now Pythagoras gives us a lot of the words that we take for granted. I said earlier that I didn't like calling the preaxial world a cosmos because Pythagoras actually invents this word, cosmos. He's the first person to describe the universe as a cosmos. Now, many of you probably treat those two terms as synonymous, universe, the one verse, and cosmos. They're not. Try to think of a word that's actually related to cosmos that you're familiar with. So the word that might not come to mind is the word cosmetic. Cosmetics come from cosmos. What do cosmetics do? They right, reveal the beauty of things, how beautiful and ordered they are. So Pythagoras has the idea that if we, go, we can 
use music and mathematical thinking and practices that engage in this altered state of consciousness and he's integrating them all together it's not quite clear how but what we can do is we can transcend and see the world as beautiful and we're going to come back and talk about this how when people have awakening experiences they suddenly experience the world as a cosmos as radically beautiful now remember Pythagoras because he's going to have a huge influence on somebody we're going to talk about Plato but there's somebody who had an even greater influence on Plato and somebody who really epitomizes the axial revolution in ancient Greece in fact he has a revolution named after him this is called the Socratic revolution and the person we want to talk about is Socrates I'm going to argue how Socrates epitomizes the Greek form of the axial revolution and then what we're going to do is we're going to see how Plato takes Socrates and Pythagoras and puts them together and how Socratic and Platonic your cognition is how it's part of the grammar of how you think but once again even though that's the grammar of how we understand meaning and wisdom and what a self is and how we how we grow how we self-transcend how we get in touch with reality we are no longer in the worldview of Pythagoras do we do you actually I mean this seriously do you actually experience the universe as a cosmos we'll take a look at that the next time we're together thank you very much for your time yo 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 we're back do you actually experience the universe as a continuous cosmos oh what a beautiful um, what a beautiful invitation and beautiful question and then just insight into you know what co- you know use the word cosmos but it's like that's um, hey hey no we ain't watching you whoever the get heck get out of here what is this but uh something trying to be like for Vakey. we ain't having it <laughs> nah this might be cool we, we never know um but yeah it enhances the beauty that's already there you know, and it, it, it answered a question. I'm like, why, why do they call it cosmetology? And cosmetics. The beauty. The order of things. So Pythagoras realized that through his uh, thunder ritual in the cave. Yeah. I wonder what he, uh, he took or did during that. I don't ritual. know. If you lock yourself in a cave, you got to fight off the whole, like, go to freak out, freak out, freak out. Without any food yeah. and you have complete yeah. sensory deprivation or as much as you can get. But, you know, total sound and light deprivation. You and your fear. Just you and, and, yeah, and presence and the stillness. It's very, well, if you've ever done, uh, like, the sensory deprivation float tanks, um, that cuts out sound pretty well and light. And you also get a sense of weightlessness, so you don't feel the weight of your body of gravity. And you even, they they have the water uh, at the same temperature, basically, as your surface of your skin, so... Once you get really still, you can't even really tell where your body ends and where it begins. And so you have such a full sensory deprivation in those kinds of cave-like experiences 
that it's really easy to meditate very deeply and also work through something complex. Say you're working on a, a movie script or something like that or a very complex mathematical problem. So Einstein would go and lay on a boat in, in the boat on yeah. in the middle of the lake and yeah, go, go deep, go into it. So we learned about democracy and debate starting to form. Uh, we learned about Kairos. We learned about promise. I think and that's where the, we picked and up. the promise is a kind of double-loaded word. Uh, right, yeah. Which, you know, like, you could fall short of your promise mm-hmm. would be the phrase. And it to would be, sin, to miss the mark. Yeah. But, and is it the promise that you made or the promise that you have? Yeah, you know, it's the like, promise that you it, make well, to yourself. both, really. And then also but, your promise as a person, your potential, yeah. right. I could say, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so kairos is like the right time, the critical moment. It's also another word for time or weather in in ancient Greek, I believe. And so Kairos was personalized in a person, the idea of Christ, um, the idea of rebirth and resurrection and all of, all of that. Uh, we learned about contrast, uh, the contrast yeah. experiment, where it doesn't matter what's written, but if it's written in clear, easier to read contrast, it becomes not only more comprehensible, but more believable. It makes it more salient. Well, this leads us. us back to like the first episode that we did on this, where he's talking about, you know, what are effective, uh, you know, psycho technologies mm-hmm. or, uh, what did you call it? Like basically like what video games and other things, things that, uh, flow state, flow state, inductors. Yeah. 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 Um, but one of the aspects Induction of that, devices. it has to be very clear and concise, you know, it, Mm-hmm. The information has to be clear, so our brains are geared to clear information. The rules of boundaries. I'm going to believe that's yeah. true, bef- more than mm-hmm. not so clear. Yeah, clear Even articulation the of the rules and the boundaries, and then like very responsive feedback. So everything, yeah, the colors, the contrast of everything is very important, making them stand out and salient to you. And the sense of of experience during the flow state is like that in a video game. Everything's extra vivid. Yeah. And so, okay, so we, the hint sense of salience. How in touch with reality we feel um, that sense of da'at that we're looking for. Vowels increased our, increased our fluency further, supercharged the psychotechnology of language, made it even more accessible and, and even more expressible. Uh, we, we gained words when we yeah. <laughs> developed vowels. Yeah. And they're easier, they're stickier, So it's in, meaning that you knew what this thing definitely means by this word now, for sure. You know, it's not just a stand-in for several different things like hieroglyphs and pictor. Pictorial style languages are sure. Well, and also you can use vowels to just modify pre-existing words. You do, you know, mm-hmm. you know, time past. Put a y at the end of it. You know, mm-hmm. active. Yeah, you know, adjective versus verb or yeah. noun. And okay, so, so the Greeks developed democracy debate which enhanced rational argumentation that became a core psychotechnology of the time one of those things that's like internalized learning it's just there you can't explicitly learn it and teach it but it's best learned implicitly and of course through the actual action of it the rhetorical output Uh, so we got to Pythagoras 600 BCE, the divine men, um, the rediscovery of uh, the psychotechnology. So Pythagoras and his thunder ritual in the cave, uh, him inventing the idea of cosmos itself, which, as he said, reveals the beauty, the order of things, how the universe expresses itself. I want to bring up the point that he made where Pythagoras dressed as a god 
Mm-hmm. And at least the people that follow him, they didn't care. And that's, that's that was interesting because yeah. it, it's almost like he's showing the power, the, uh, what's the word, the, uh, not majesty, but uh, the, like word the glory, used, or the glory yeah. um, that he is, has and is wielding with you know, his enhanced cognitive ability and well he really was picking up then wasn't he because he's acting like a shaman there yeah well yeah yeah, man and you know (laughs) a lot of it is just the placebo effect you got to sell it you know Mm -hmm. what i mean and it it, and he was also an expression of it yeah in human earth earthling way of doing it so uh pythagoras invents the idea of cosmos and then of course that importance of how can we transcend and experience the radically beautiful communion with reality again becomes increasingly important and so we're going to go into Socrates and then Plato which incorporates Pythagoras and Socrates and how that becomes further a part of our cognitive grammar the idea of self and self transcendence becomes further explored yeah Yeah. so do you actually experience a continuous cosmos Ravigi asks and that's that's a compelling question, and and I do like I take that as an invitation. And well, that, it'd be nice to be able to do it more often and hold on mm-hmm, to it mm-hmm, as more yeah. of a regular occurrence. But sure, you know, well, yeah, if we could get our environment really, more tuned yeah, to eighty. It's real easy to accelerate and let the everyday world bear you down and grind you to dust if you let it. You know, the world as it is is something that I, I think really takes practice and. Yeah, we have to retune ourselves to our current environment, current level of technological capacity, all the great responsibility that comes with being stewards with this much power. So how can we not sin as human beings? How can we utilize? But I think the one thing right now is realize that we have a mark we are shooting at. We've lost our mark or the idea that there was one to go towards anyway. Like I was saying earlier. um, So to become uh, more ready, reliable shooters, hitters of the mark in accord oh. with reality. So what I was Mindfulness saying. techniques are becoming increasingly popular mm-hmm. for a reason because the human being itself is, of course, genetically tuned towards evolution, long-term survival. Oh, sure. We're and just... it's, it's recognizing something's missing and it's searching for it even subconsciously and that's why you're seeing this great resurgence that yeah. he speaks of in the first episode. And you were saying. It's yeah. good to see this. And like, so what I was saying earlier, uh, now that I caught my thought, is... We've tend to, and this is on the ne- negative aspect of things. And when I say we, I mean like all of us. But we have tended to get to this point where the future is a nihilistic state, where it's like, oh, it's a threat. It's you know, you don't do it now. It's like we need, you know, we need to get past that because that's no mark at all. That's not a mark. That's a place you're going to be thrown into, not a place you're shooting for. So that's in right. our relationship with with where we're going, getting way later, how, of we need to get ourselves back on the mark yeah. with that relationship. Yeah, the, the sense that the, we're you know driving the, towards a cliff, that we need to veer, that we need to yeah. get back on track, yeah, on back course. on course, yeah, is is very palpable now. And you know, a little gratitude goes a long way. So gratitude. the more great, mm-hmm. you know, gracious you are in life, the. Mm. I won't say the easier it is to kind of, you know, stay on course and not go so nihilistic and not see the future in the world and humans as, you know, terrible, despicable things. Just a little, you know. I'm grateful the, the universe happened the way it did yeah, so I could yeah. be here doing I like it. To, I like to think yeah. of it as like we're barely out of our primate britches. Yeah, right. You know? 
we're, we're still... I put on my big boy pants and they're like hanging off yeah. the bottom. You know? Yeah, we're still so similar to... Tripping on our own pants. We're so close to our, our primate cousins, yet so different and, and vastly evolved from. And... But we do retain these territorial tribal instincts. You still have that lizard brain from our early evolution. And... We have these psychotechnologies that we've adapted over thousands of years, uh, some of which are incredibly reliable at allowing us to be able to flow with the current more more consistently, more ably. And, you, know, I have, I, you know, after watching some of these videos, I've, I've kind of got this idea. It's like, you know, there's even the oldest of the old techniques and technologies that may not seem immediately applicable now, I think are becoming a point of time where it's like, Look, the old shaman, you know, the, the Paleolithic, uh, the Upper Paleolithic uh, tra- transition. Transition, yeah. That stuff is, there's going to be stuff in there that is going to actually be pretty pertinent to now. The same thing with, you know, sure. the Bronze Age. Like, those technologies we developed are probably going to start becoming very useful now. Same thing with the Axial Age. It's like we're at this perfect point in time where everything before mm-hmm. is going to become very Continuous cosmos. You know, sense of relation and orientation to reality. But you know, I yeah. can, I can embedded in a story where you are interrelating and inter creating, co creating yeah. the universe with the transcendent. I could see a, with a, one another. a mass confusion for a while because, like, just like with yeah. the internet, all the information you well, can I think possibly want is yeah, it's on the yeah. internet, but it's still harder to harder than ever to find the information. Yeah. Even though it's all there on the internet because it's just so freaking much. There's so much. Information <laughs> it's like, oh man. Yeah. yeah we you got a lot. You got a lot to parse uh, parse through. And then when you start looking yeah. at your own toolbox and you're like, well, there's so oh crap. Buddha had really good advice on how to find out what is true and and what to follow and how to be in life. And he said, don't believe anything just because I've said it. Don't believe anything because your parents, your teachers, your elders say it. Don't be believe anything just because it's popular and everyone, you know, believe it and say it. Only after your own thorough investigation and finding it to be true and good for one and all, accept it and live up to it. Yeah. I don't know how sloppy a paraphrasing that is, but that's that's the general. Well, that's the point. And that's That's critical thinking in a nutshell. That's the scientific method as well. Be willing to challenge your own beliefs, your own uh, uh, your own wants, your you know your your own biases and preferences and all of that and loaded ideas that you come into an experiment with or something that you want to figure out and understand and if it, usually if it feels too good you might want to look at it again yeah, challenge it yeah challenge everything that you believe be willing to question mm-hmm. and look for what is most true and good for one and all because ra- rather than caring about being right and being seen as having been correct yeah, um, right. just care for what is right most what right for one and all and that's a totally different orientation. Then it's okay. You well, don't and you got to be okay with you, being you the invite fool the opportunity too, man, to be to have your information upgraded, and because we're all trying to figure out how to solve this meaning crisis together, and we're going to need each other to do it. We need all minds at once. I need you. All the minds we can get. Needs the rain. <laughs> it's the truth, though. Yeah. Like we really, we, we can't. Even a hundred of us, the greatest minds on the planet, aren't going to be able to pull this off. It really is going to no, take. No, it needs to be like as all many, of us, as many as we can get. I, 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 I would take to, all to of really them. help. Yeah, well, eventually it can spread out to virtually all human beings. Well, it it, it has at least many the knowledge of this orientation, you know? a different orientation to life. Um, but you know this, 
when we speak of the idea of presence and stillness and mindfulness practices, this is something that is immeasurably deep. Um, the further you go into it, the more there is, and there's always this continual gradation of understanding and realization and enlightenment. No cap, no bottom to any understanding, no top to any potential point of transcendence. It just keeps on going and going and going, and we become ever wiser and able to live in ever more, more gracefully in gratitude and concert with and accord and circuit and flow with life and Oh, all these metaphors yeah, that are yeah. so good. But, um, confusing the hell out of me. Because it's just like, <laughs> oh, well, now it means a whole lot more now. I thought I had that word and that concept. and you know. There's so many different ways of pointing to it. Yeah. yeah. So, there, so you can add so much definition and resolution to the idea and then how it plugs into other things. So the branches and become ever more complex, the understanding deeper. And that's what we're going for here because we're going to need all the knowledge, wisdom, and the responsible Maybe a little bit of grace and luck. Yeah, understanding of ourselves and one another. <laughs> grace, luck, yeah. yeah. Well, luck, uh, Cicero said, is the combination of preparation and timing. Yep. Right. Well, that, and, and the, uh, luck favors the prepared. Well, yeah. Pretty, yeah, pretty much, yeah. 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 And timing, well, you know, it's, it's music, it's rhythm, we can figure it out. Yeah, you can yeah if you're in the rhythm and your response is mm -hmm. the right one in that moment, then it can trigger another thing. It's funny how the world unfurls. Well, that was a good one. Uh, yeah, yeah, very. So we're, we've really started getting into it now. We only get denser as we go. It so only gets better. Yeah, we will get better at this. You will get better at this. Go check it out on your own. Um, like go on yeah. there, put it at like one point two five speed, and oh yeah, you can get up. I can get up one point seventy five comfortably yeah. um, enough to still follow. Um, but of course I like to listen back at normal speed a lot too, but just to kind can, of soak in his, cause he's figuring some of this out as he's, as he does it. I mean, he has a, a very good idea of where he wants to go, like this, he's just like pointing it but there's the moments where he's looking for the right word for something that, you know, he's continually explicating this for himself as well. But it is, it is quite profound. It's the ultimate meaningful thing to do. <laughs> is to find the meaning and help put it back together for humanity in this time. Yeah. It's, it's a, a grand undertaking and it's a really exciting and beautiful thing to be involved in. Uh, yeah. So it gives you, it makes it gives me you feel better about belonging. life. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's been a, it's a very unstable ship lately. Sure, yeah, man. But, but already just three episodes in, I'm, you know, and, even rewatching this now, I keep picking up more and more and more every yeah, time I view yeah. these because there's so much. Um, there's so much reflection that one can experience and have th throughout this process of, of this revelation that Vivek is unfolding. And it's, it's helping us understand where we are on the map, at the part of the story that we're at as a species. But yeah, we, we yeah. shouldn't be so hard on ourselves. This is no, just we, part no, of the process. We're in the middle of the story, right? We're doing all right. We're not we're the end of the story. Good. We're not perfectly evolved angels yet. We descended from these crazy primate tribal warring animals that were living in a very harsh, brutally neutral environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like nature you know, don't care. No. Nature does nature. And, well, it develops into caring yeah. things, though, that live oh, well, sure. like us. I mean, we but have... The storm no doesn't care you're underneath of it. It's just going to rage. Yeah, we don't have thick skin. We don't have Our claws. Our most vital elements are exposed. Like most of other animals, even the great predators, like their stomach and vitals are to the ground, protected. We're open to the environment because this is what makes us so much more powerful. 
than the rest of the animals. Now, and what do we do when we see a challenge? We go, what, what, and expose ourselves even We're more. We're comfortable and confident. <laughs> and, and, and you can tell when something's comfortable and confident. The other animals saw this thing. They're like, what the heck is this? Yeah. At first they thought easy prey, and then they realized that we had very sharp throwing and shooting implements. Or, you know, just the stick, knowing we how to wield smart, the stick. And we would surround them and outsmart them and outwit them. The stick is underestimated. Outmaneuver. Underappreciated, because the stick is not just to poke but it's also a lever that you can attach things to right the lever the lever mm. is the oldest piece of physical technology mm. yeah, yeah. other than the hammer right the hammer you know, hit something but then the lever stick something in and do yeah. that yeah and yeah. then while well, you rock throw the, lever, the levers up. through space like you know he made the the point in i guess it was the first episode of this um about you know being able to throw means you have to develop a psycho technology for you to understand your target and yourself. So an object we think in terms of language yeah. is formed around this to well, descend and miss the mark. I would go on further that we think of levers, levers, know, turning manipulate points, manipulate things, yeah. you know, like Cairo's um, turning point, manual, mm-hmm. manipulate, mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. know. So yeah, and we are thinking machines that think with think. machines about machines thinking about mm-hmm. themselves. <laughs> yeah, machines that make machines. Thinking about machines. Yeah. We're somehow yeah. conscious, but we're made up of billions of different constituent parts that are all independently active. Yeah. And independently and navi- nav- you know, self navigating and And really we're just operating. We're the machines that DNA uses to propagate itself. So proteins animate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Billions of them. Uh, like bacteria yeah. like we're colonies. Crazy. Yeah, what the heck are we? Yeah, we're these colonies of these microorganisms that make us up. Well, and then we have self-consciousness and self-awareness. How does that work? We're alive <laughs> and we're strange. That is That's the truth. Yeah, but yeah, we're getting some stabilization and we do get to be able to tell a story about our place in the cosmos and where we're going so we can help make the future. And feeling involved gives you a sense of belonging, a sense of a sturdy ground. And yeah, then things coast. Then we flow, and humanity is hungering for that. So we're we're very excited excited that you all have joined us on this learning journey together here with John Verbeke and um, this watch along of the awakening from the meaning crisis. Yeah, we're just we're going we're going down the path hand in hand with you. So yeah, yeah. You can listen to or you can watch this podcast on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook. You can look for the live streams. We're going to be trying to hit them every Wednesday, but every once in a while we'll you know, have to reschedule so it'll land on the weekend or another day. But we'll let you guys know. I'll look for us around seven or eight Wednesdays typically. I think that's yeah, what we're kind yeah. of going for. In eight's nice. It's an eight eight to ten kind of thing. So. Yeah, yeah. If we can push it back to seven, I might want to try and do that. But it's, yeah. you know, because ten's a little late for some people. Some people get up early. Yeah, well, it, it, it takes a lot to get this thing rolling. It so, takes me forever you know. to get this all set up and make sure it's running right, and I got all the details and titles correct. And it's it's a little bit uh, of a process, but we're learning. It's fun, and it's uh, I'm grateful to be able to share with all of you. It's yeah. it's a grace to be able to. Uh, this has brought me so much, so much meaning. This has given me yeah. so much relief, and. It's been a consolation. It's been heartening to to find this this masterwork, and uh, I do believe that we might well look back on Verbeke as 
Socrates of our time, um, and many others that. Yeah. Well, we got a lot of you, them. You know, we're we are standing on the shoulders of giants. We've, we've got we really are. We've got There's so many the heroes that one would write yeah. if we were in this kind of like a story. If Earth was a story, yeah. which it is to us, you know, is how we orient and navigate best. Well, we would have. I, I would write these kinds mm -hmm. of heroes, and I'll write in Jordan Hall, Daniel Schmachtenberger, John Verbeke, and Jordan Peterson, and, uh, and Thomas Sowell, Krishnamurti, Krishnamurti, and. Yeah. and Bruce Lee. <laughs> Just within our short period of time Chuck of being Norris. live, we've shared the earth with an insane amount of very highly... Robin Williams. Um, really special, yeah. amazing people. Yeah. yeah. Jesuses, Buddhas. And they're all unique in their own little ways, yeah. too. Enlightened you know? beings of, of all levels. Yeah. Enlightening beings. Enlightening, for sure. Still, long after. Well, on that note, guys... Love y'all. Have a good week. We will see you next time for episode four of John Berbeke's Awakening from the Meeting Crisis. Thank you for joining. Make sure to like and subscribe this show so it can reach more people. Leave some and comments. Got questions, thank comments, you for questions. Doing show. Yeah, questions, comments, whatever you got. We will uh, look forward to hearing what you guys think. And we'll uh, continue on down this path together. Continue growing and awakening and realizing the highest potential that humans can achieve in this day and age in these times that we are living well it's definitely worth doing it so let's do it it feels good yeah let's it's do definitely it. worth trying yeah why not you know even if <laughs> yeah why not to fail, why not go out beautifully like trying and doing justice to how far we've gotten which is i think commendable yeah. i think we're, we're doing better than we think we are after all writers for a bunch of bald apes we're doing pretty romance novels <laughs> and you know we we uh we we really do. We, we are very loving, um, sociable animals. And the ones that get close to us become that way as well. And yeah, we're, we're, we're the full spectrum, but we've got a lot going for us. And we, we continue to mature and develop our moral wisdom. So, hey, we're on the journey here, guys. All right, peace we out. Love you all. Talk to you soon. I'll go get Where's some sleep, you crazy right? animals. Yourself some sleepy times and dream and dream so that we may vision the next level.